Welcome to The Road Back to You. Looking at life through the lens of the Enneagram, I'm Suzanne Stabile. And I'm Ian Cron. And we're so glad that you're listening today. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Road Back to You. I'm with my incredibly wonderful friend, and I guess I always call you my partner in crime. You are my partner in crime, because we're kind of mischievous together. I... True. That's true. Yeah? Yeah, we're not always criming, but no. we're, <laughs> we're so, always mischievous. That's right. This is my friend and co-author, Suzanne Stabile, and uh, today we get to talk about the most fascinating and wonderful number of all, the four. I'm just going to hold back for a while. We're going to talk about fours uh, today. I happen to be a four on the Enneagram. Everybody will know that from the intro. Thank yes, you. Yes, yes. But Michael, our guest, is a four, too. My, well, see? So that's where, that's where we're going. We have a really a timely and, and wonderful show today Uh talking um, about, not just about uh, fours, which our guest Michael Ware is, but, um, but really also talking about this, this political environment we're living in. We're living in an, an election uh, season. It's at the forefront of all of our minds, really. And so before we even get started, can I just express to you uh, sort of an anxiety that we have? We're just going to out an anxiety right from the very beginning, which is... Um, the Enneagram is such a wonderful tool for generating compassion, uh, and that's one of the things you and I hope will, will happen as a result of our work together. It's and the only guarantee we ever make. We, we don't guarantee that people are going to know their number when we finish teaching. We don't guarantee anything, but we do guarantee that people will be more compassionate. For sure. And there is a, a, a real, you know, obviously paucity of compassion in, in the environment that we're in these days. We don't in any way during this show want to um, cast our vote or to in, uh, add any more division to the culture, right, or uh, strife. What we'd like to do is really just talk about personality and the political environment and how the two interplay. And our guest today is just perfect for this, Michael Ware. Um, Michael, tell everybody about yeah, you. Yeah, tell us, tell us about you. Sure, sure. Well, I'm from, uh, well, first, it's great to be on, great to be with you. Excited for the for the conversation. Uh, I, I'm from uh, Buffalo, New York, um, and uh, found my way to working uh, with President Obama uh, in the White House and on his his campaigns. I worked with um, religious people um, in the White House and did religious outreach for his reelection campaign. I was I was honored to to run faith outreach, um, and and now I'm a, a consultant and a, and an author of a book that will be coming out in January called Reclaim. Hope, Lessons Learned in the Obama White House about the Future of Faith in America. And that, that comes out in January. That's uh, very exciting. Congratulations. Yeah. yeah, I'm excited about it. It's uh, I'm literally, uh, you know, putting the final final edits, final touches on it uh, this week. And then I have to have to sign it away, give it away and uh, uh, and, and let it let it get out into the world. And, and I'm excited about that. Yeah. And did you find that writing a book was the easiest thing you've ever done in your entire life? <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I, I enjoyed it more than uh, many of my 
friends who are authors, um, you know, reported to me, I, I, I got a sense of, uh, it was stressful, but I'm a generally stressed person. And so that didn't bother me so much. And the release of being able to knock off, you know, 3000 words and feel good about them and feel like they, they were what you wanted to say was, was, um, was, was, was pretty special. So I had a great time writing the book. I learned a lot, a lot about myself, a lot about you know, a lot of the book is reflecting on the last eight years um, of the Obama administration, and and it was it was helpful um, helpful to to really um, to, to really delve into some of those issues. So uh, you're an Enneagram Four um, in our uh, parlance and in our approach, we call that the romantic. Others call yeah. the uh, the four the the individualist. And uh, oh, the, I, I hadn't even thought about it being the romantic. Can I ask a question? Yes. I know I just interrupted, but it's a good question. I don't want to lose it. Okay, go for it. So um, what was your romantic idea of what it would be like to work in the White House or in politics in D.C., and how did that end up being true, and how was it not true? Yeah, that, that's a wonderful, that's a great question. Um, and it, it, it's one that's um, close to the center of, of my book. I mean, so I started, um, I started at the white house when I was 20 years old. Wow. Um, and so, uh, I started working on the president's campaign, uh, when I was, uh, believe I was 19. And so, you know, part of it honestly was, I, I didn't know what to think about much of anything in terms of what to expect. I, I mean, it was, it was, it was a, it wasn't like I had worked on, a number of state campaigns and, and, and it, uh, I found myself working, um, you know, at a, at a national campaign level pretty, pretty early on. Um, and then, and then at the white house, which nothing compares, um, to that in terms of the, the convening power the, uh, I, I will say there is an expectation when you go in, I think that, and I don't mean this in a, uh, derisive or or, or a, a marginalizing way, but there is this idea that everyone who works in the White House is somehow superhuman and and uh, smarter and uh, you know everything better organized than everybody. Doesn't else need in any the sleep. World. No sleep. Doesn't you don't need sleep, to eat. You just yeah yeah. No emotions. They're just robots. And then you get there, and it's actually a pleasant surprise to realize these are actually like real people that that. <laughs> have have their own uh and I was a real person you know like we we have our our weak spots we have um we have what things we specialize in and things we uh things we don't we have uh uh we all need assistance in what we're doing um and so um uh, you, you know uh, in, in this case in many ways the romantic view wasn't that great of a view. And when I got there, it was actually uh, somewhat of a, a relief to find um, that, that uh, folks working in the white house, working in DC anywhere are, are just, just you know, real, real people, very talented, very right. Like no one was there who, uh, uh, who, uh, um, uh, who, who well, there, there were no dim lights in the bunch, but, but, uh, they were all just very smart, very real people. That's so great. That makes me, that makes me feel good. <laughs> that makes me feel good. 
So uh, one of the reasons that we're, we're here today and why you're on, Michael, is we're, we're talking about this, you know, what's Suzanne would agree is the most complicated number on the Enneagram. Absolutely. The, the, the four. And for our listeners who don't know about the individualist or the romantic, the, the Enneagram four, let's just hit a few of the hallmark features. The first being that all fours have this sort of interior sense that something is missing in their essential makeup, like like some irredeemable deficiency or absence, lacking, inner lacking, that re- requires them to uh, cover with being special and unique. Yeah. What, what do you got? Um, a, a second thing I would think we might want to add to that is that fours... Um, their sin or their passion mm-hmm. is envy. Right. In teaching, uh, we've learned that people really often don't get the difference in envy and jealousy. And fours don't want what you have. They want your way of being. Mm-hmm. Fours want to be comfortable in the world, and it seems like you are. And fours want to be happy, right. and it seems like you are. So they kind of their longing is often for a way of, uh, it, it's often for a countenance or a way of being, not so much for your car or your job. Right. Well, Michael, how about you? What do you think are, are some of the hallmark features of an Enneagram 4 that really resonate for you? Yeah, well, you know, it's it's an interesting question. I, I think this sense of longing is uh, very resonant um, with, with me. I am... Um, um, I think there is a um, – I can be a nostalgic person. Um, I like the idea of things. Um, mm. I, 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 I love jazz music, but I love the idea of jazz music uh, even more perhaps. Um, That's so good. And so um, there is that that uh, longing for something you can't quite grasp. Mm-hmm. Um uh, and, and then just the the artistic sensitivities. Uh, I, I have awful motor skills, so I'm, I'm not a visual uh, artist, uh, and I wasn't even that good of a musician. Um, but this sensitivity to the culture of things, um, to the culture of politics, um, is is very important to me. I'm probably more attuned to. Um, uh, the culture of politics, the rhetoric, what it does to the human spirit, then, um, then, um, th- then uh, uh, other people in Washington and that are involved in, in politics. I so um, don't want to stop your train of thought, but will you talk about that some more? That's fascinating. Yeah. yeah well, I, I was talking with somebody and. Um, they they opened up the conversation by uh, noting that I um, work on both faith and politics, which are the two things you're not supposed to discuss at the dinner table, right? right. That 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 old sort of cliche. Uh, and I, I had never thought of it this way before, but I I I, I said to the person, you know. I think that's true, but it's true for the opposite reasons. People don't talk about. Um, politics because they invest too much of their identity in their political views. Uh, and they don't want to talk about religion because they don't, uh, 
they, they know that they don't invest enough in in spiritual things, um, and so both the the closeness um, of their political views um, uh, uh, and, and the sort of um, uh, the, the sort of the the longing um, associated with their with um, how how they're pursuing God or pursuing spirituality or, or whatever sort of sort of language they would use um, leads them to want to push both way. It leads it to make uh, for very difficult conversation um, topics, and I think we're seeing that in our in our politics today. J- just to uh, build on the point a, a bit further, in, in 2014, um, a study came out. Um, from Stanford um, that showed that polarization is at all-time highs, and it's not just um, – it's it's actually seeped into our social fabric. fabric. And so um, in the 1960s, when they uh, did a survey asking parents um, um, – who would you not like to see your child marry or who would you be most upset if your child married? It was uh, someone of a different religion and someone of a different race. Uh, they asked the same question, um, you know, in, 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 in 2014 or 2013, whenever they compiled the research and uh, the, the top answer was not religion, not race. It was, some, it was, I would not want my child to marry someone of a different political party. Wow. That's fascinating. It is. And think about what that means for how we organize our lives, how we organize our communities. Um, uh, uh, there's been other research that, that showed that uh, ideological segregation is uh, going on. And so uh, we wonder why it seems like our political parties are talking just within themselves. And it's because they, they literally do not know <laughs> anyone who doesn't think the way that they do. <laughs> I'm just fascinated by all of that. And you know, what's uh, what's amazing, I think I read that article, if it's the same one or the same study, because it said that, <clears throat> you know, uh, sort of bias in the public space, right? If, uh, for example, if you look like mm-hmm. someone of the, of another political party, so if you, you look like a, a stereotypical Democrat or Republican or whatever, people's treatment of you in the public square will be negative or positive based on your appearance. And so that opens up the whole possibility of, uh, not, it's sort of, that's not racism, but it's sort of a ideological, um, equivalent, right? So you appear to be this, therefore I might treat you poorly as a shopkeeper because I sense, oh, you're one of them. Yeah. I wouldn't take this. Um, I don't, it's important to understand the context around which he's, he said this. Um, but, but Bill Clinton, um, which it was interesting that he's, he said it was before, uh, uh, before secretary Clinton decided to run for president, Bill Clinton, um, said that the last acceptable remaining form of bigotry is against those you disagree with. Mm. Now, now, what he wasn't saying there was that uh, there's no longer any racism or no longer any other form of discrimination. What he was saying is that uh, di- uh, discrimination against those you disagree with uh, is, is, um, is the last form of discrimination we overlook. It's what we're blind to. Um, so, so you can, uh, and I just thought that was, that was a really profound thing for someone who's been in our politics for 30, 40 years for him to, 
to have that insight, I, I think, was is pretty helpful. Mm. Yeah, it's very interesting in the language we use frequently. That would be the difference in dualistic thinking and non-dualistic thinking. And there's, it's it's either or instead of both and. And mm. I don't think I, um, I'm 66. And in my lifetime, I don't think I've experienced a time politically where I felt like we were more polarized than we are now. Mm-hmm. And it's it causes so much tension. Yeah. Um, so I think one of the reasons we're, we have some anxiety around talking about politics, although our tagline is that we're going to talk about looking at everything mm-hmm. that's happening yeah. through the lens of the Enneagram. So in terms of looking at, at at what's happening, maybe the split between the sacred and the profane in terms of mm-hmm. all that you said about religion and politics, and then maybe uh, this whole piece of um, not being able to embrace any kind of both-and thinking, you could be right and I could be right, I'm wondering how we're going to offer um, people what they're looking for. You know, like um, ones on the Enneagram need to be correct when they vote. Mm-hmm. And twos on the Enneagram need to be socially conscious when they vote. Yeah. And threes on the Enneagram need to be successful when they vote. Yeah. And um, you guys can speak to fours better than I can. Why don't you take four, five, six, and I'll come back in. Oh, I think it's four, <laughs> five, and six. Well, I, <clears throat> let me go backwards. I think six uh, are going to be drawn to the candidate they feel will offer them the, the highest degree of, of security, right. of feeling secure. Uh, I think fives, gosh, um, would vote for a candidate that or be attracted to a candidate that... Uh, perhaps m- most logically fits the moment, right? I mean, or uh, that that because they're mm. so neutral, you know, they're, they, ah. they're so objective mm-hmm. about, about things. For them, too, because they're the only number that's capable of neutrality, I, I would think it might be just a head trip. Right. Like that they don't get kind of drawn in to some of the antics that the rest of us get caught up in. It's right. just a... Head trip for them. And, and you know, Michael, I want to piggyback on something you just said because it, it, to answer about fours, because actually it was very enlightening to me and explained some things about my own experience as a four. When you were talking about speeches and uh, you were talking about what's inspiring in politics, right? And then I, I got to think about the West Wing, which I loved, of course, because it's so scripted <laughs> and, and, and Sorkin had such a way with language, right? Um, <clears throat> And, and I do think about moments in political rhetoric and speech, right? Yeah. Whether it was Ronald Reagan, who was a genius, right? The city on a hill. Uh, that yeah. beautiful four-ish language. That's four yeah. language talking about a city on a hill. And, yeah. and uh, Bill Clinton, you know, uh, from, you know uh, uh, that, uh, from a place called Hope. That's and, right. Right. And then you have, uh, we can go on, right? Obama uh, and, 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 yeah. and others. Political rhetoric and speech making, I, I think a four would be actually very drawn to a candidate that that actually inspires and, and kind of creates the feeling, that transcendent feeling of being inspired and moved to be part of something larger than yourself. I absolutely but, agree with that. Yeah. And sevens. Let, let, oh, go yeah. ahead. Go ahead, I, Michael. I'm sorry. I just want to build on something you said, which is you, you mentioned how inspired you felt watching West Wing. Um, so there, there's been a significant writing about this. 
Um, if you were to go back and watch the uh, then Senator Obama's 2007-2008 campaign, much of it was cribbed or ideas were elaborated upon that were directly from the West Wing. Mm. Um, and so that, uh, it, I, I want to get through seven, nine, but I think it, I, I do just want to say, and we could elaborate on this a bit. I think one of the most important things for, for folks to understand is that um, b- b- political strategists are appealing to people based on precisely these terms. And if you are unaware of what strings they're trying to pull, which there's nothing wrong with pulling on those strings. But if you think that uh, the, the candidate is, uh, 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 that, that uh, it's some uh, serendipitous thing <laughs> that a candidate is saying what he's saying and not a strategic move, then it's easy to be manipulated whether it's on the basis of longing, whether it's on the basis of security. And that's it's very important to have that awareness when you're thinking about um, political engagement. So, so I just wanted to just wanted to throw that in before we but before that, we continue. But, yeah. but that makes me really uncomfortable <laughs> mm-hmm. because of what it means to me is, is that I'm not actually meeting a candidate. Uh, yeah. What I'm actually meeting is a, a candidate who is embodying uh, a very calculated uh, set of traits that probably across the board are designed to uh, resonate all right, or to create some kind of a sympathetic ring of the interior bell of every yeah. single you know, personality type to get the broadest swath of votes possible. So who who am I actually speaking to or listening to if, if a candidate is doing that? I'd love to hear what you think. Like how do I how do I know who's actually yeah. telling the truth? Well I, I think um uh I think the important thing is to not go to politics um looking for your inner needs to be met. And oh we have, say it again. Say it again, say have, it again. Do not go to politics looking for your inner needs to be met. We have far, far too much of that in our politics today. Um, And uh, listen, politicians are politicians. They are going to, their job is to seek votes. Um, And so uh, it's not their job to, um, uh, we could call on them to, we could hold them accountable for not, um, at seeking um, uh, uh, to politic based on emotional manipulation, but on uh, substance. But outside of that, it's really our responsibility um, to make sure that we're not filling holes with politics, which is ill-equipped to fill holes, by the way. Um, uh, because if, if that's how we come to politics, um, then we're not really going to be equipped um, to engage in a way that's fruitful for ourselves or for our neighbors and society. So, so that's it's it's very important to understand. I mean, that's why I, I've, that's part of why I've been so interested in this conversation um, because uh, after eight, eight years, and I'm, I'm still working in politics now, um, the, the importance of voters understanding themselves is um, is. Uh, the importance of that has only been heightened through my experience. Mm. Okay, I'm going to do seven. I'm going to do sevens, eights, and nines because we need to. And then I'm going to ask yeah, you a please. follow-up question to what you just said. Sure. 
Okay, so um, sevens, interestingly enough, are looking somewhat for the same thing that fours are because, you know, sevens do not change unless they're inspired to change. Mm -hmm. And they're, like fours, looking for inspiration in uh, decision-making. Eights uh, already have decided generally what the right thing to do is, and they're looking for agreement in that. I think they're also looking for someone who is not a waffler or an equivocator. They just do not want to follow a leader who doesn't know where where he or she is going and where they stand. Anything that, that, that sounds like waffling is weakness, and weakness is to be avoided at all costs. I agree with that. And I think, uh, Michael, I don't know, um, it would be presumptuous for me to think that you've ever heard me teach, so I'm going to just tell you what I say often about nines, and that is I really think they only listen to two-thirds of what's said. Hmm. And I think in um, political conversation when things get too dualistic and nines feel the anxiety of losing their peace, I think they stop listening. Yeah. And I also think uh, an unhealthier, uh, a a nine who's not self-aware will merge, will be the product of their last conversation. They they will merge with the opinions and the preferences of a stronger personality that they're in the room with at that moment. Right. Go, yeah, well, I'm voting for so-and-so too, you know? Right. It's like, without their even being aware that they just yeah. changed parties. <laughs> it would be so interesting. We'll never get to, though, but it would be so interesting with Enneagram people to um, take all the nines and see where they are going in to vote and uh-huh. then see where they are coming That's out. That's right. Okay, I'm going to circle back now because I want to finish yeah. something before we move on. You said that we shouldn't look uh, to politicians for getting our needs met for all of that. What should we look for? Yeah. So I, I said our, our inner needs. Right, our, right. So our, uh, yeah. So our, um, our you know, it, it's a tough line to to walk, but I, I, I have to say I've, I've become a, a bit concerned with um, how – much politics and politicians are using popular culture um, to uh, enter um, voters' lives um, and change their uh, uh, change their uh, perceptions. I, I think um, I think we'll look back at this age of politicians on Saturday, Saturday Night Live and now interviewing with YouTube stars and doing comedy skits and bringing in musicians to, uh, you know, do, do performances together at the white house and all the, all this stuff. We'll, we'll, um, we'll, we'll see, um, that those are really attempts to, um, to address inner needs that people have inner needs that people have to feel like, uh, the person in the White House um, is them, or or gets them, knows who they are, um, and politics has always been about that to some extent, but it's it's really been heightened lately, um, and, and I think there are some some pretty significant downsides to that. What what should we look to our politicians for? Um, I think I think competency. I think now there's um, a thought. Yeah, I, I think um, I think 
compassion in um, terms of how they view their their role as a public servant. Um, I think a, a record of you know an ability to get things um, get things done. I think a, a level of empathy for people uh, uh, in different circumstances that that they are in or or are familiar with. Um, a, a, a a platform that will meet their needs and the needs of their community. Um, there is a certain. It, it sounds kind of like. Um, uh, it sounds both obvious and antiquated to say those things, but that's part of why why our politics has gotten, um, I think, a, a bit off track in a different way. And just to be clear, I don't know if our politics has ever been on track. I, I'm just assessing the, the current moment we're in. Um, I worked on a on a speech President Obama gave at the National Prayer Breakfast in 2010. On civility, and and he warned against um, uh, uh, thinking that uh, these are the worst of times because he said we we haven't had a caning on the Senate floor in in, in a while, mm-hmm. and of course there was the the famous caning on 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 the Senate floor, and so I I'm, I, I don't say these things to um to to suggest that um we need to get back to some perfect state of things. Uh, I say it because I think politics, uh, because of the influx of money, because of their ability to um, to target you individually, that's the major development that's happened. Usually, um, candidates would have to mass market themselves and um, try to appeal to the most people at the same time, though. Now what we have, our candidates are able to appeal differently to different people at the same time, which leads to some very complex questions that we probably don't have time to get into yeah. about democratic accountability. But for the for the conversation we're having today, what it means is that someone could be could be uh, appealing to your desire for uh, for security on, let's say, the threat of terrorism, but appealing to the nine. Um, saying that we're not going to get into war again and we're going to reduce conflict at the same time. And so you have two two people voting for the same candidate for opposite reasons because that candidate has appealed to them pulling on opposite emotional uh, emotional levers. Mm. Um, oh my and, and so gosh. it's 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 very important to, to to again be if if folks left this here in this conversation with one thing um not going to politics seeking to have your inner spiritual needs met, to have yourself affirmed. That's not the role of politics, but it's a role politicians are happy to play if it will get your vote. Okay, so this is an amazing, this is intense. So you are, you are really- I feel like I'm almost smart enough to be at the table. Not quite. We're going to vote on that in just a second. Okay, all right. I'm sorry <laughs> so, I interrupted. But, but, but here's the thing. You're, you're given, this is an amazing uh, apologetic uh, for the kind of self-awareness that we hope an instrument like the Enneagram can produce in people, right? Which is to, to understand, okay, so what are these uh, underlying motivations and needs and uh, that, that, that are so influential and powerful in my life? And in what way am I allowing them 
to stand in the way between me and a uh, a good decision, right? Uh, based on a good matrix of you know yeah. of material, um, so that I don't you know like for me as a four, make a decision on does this guy inspire me? Does this woman inspire me? Or 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 you know give me that yeah. that that sense of you know? Or if I'm a nine or a six, as you just so th- this is excellent stuff for our, our our listeners and for us, which is to say, listen, as you approach. An election season, right? And as you're watching how it's being marketed, to recognize how a, a particular candidate or party uh, is just to just to be aware that don't be fooled. These people really do know, uh, you know, uh, the different kinds of people who are out there and who's listening. Yep. And um, just make sure you're making your decisions not based on their appeals per se, but on these other things that you were mentioning that are yeah. far more objective. You know, yeah. I, um, I'm going to tell a story to ask a question, which I frequently do. But it seems to me that part of what you're talking about that we've lost, that you have a concern about, is boundaries. Mm-hmm. Boundaries around getting our own inner needs met. Boundaries around what it means to be a part of the governing body and yeah. not being too um, available through TV and, and too uh, ordinary, perhaps. So I I read a story about uh, a new playground for kindergartners, and these five-year-olds were allowed to play in this new playground that had a big fence around it for five days. And they played and played and had the best, best time. And then they went home, and over the weekend, they took the fence down. And the five-year-olds came back, and they, rather than playing, they all huddled in the middle of the playground. None of them would go to the edges. They, they were suddenly afraid huh. because they didn't know where the parameters were. And I think we <sighs> experience some anxiety in folks in conversation right now who are afraid, are experiencing anxiety because they don't know where the boundaries are. And you perfectly addressed that by talking about this whole... Um, understanding that they've become, my language would be, a, a little too relevant, a little too folksy, uh, uh, not <laughs> commanding that we understand that there's a, they got serious business to do, and there's a, a difference between what they're thinking about and what we're all mm. thinking about. So, Michael, um, we, we often ask this question, and I'm particularly interested in hearing your response. Number one, how did you hear or first become introduced to the Enneagram? And how do you think it could um, be used in the, you know, in the world in which we, we live to uh, bring an end to some of this polarization and to, to inject, you know, a, um, you know, bring some healing to division? Yeah, well, um I heard about the Enneagram through some dear friends, um, Chris Hewerts. Oh, uh, yeah, I know Chris. Know. Yeah, I know Chris. Uh, uh, Darren Whitehead. I know Darren, uh, too. Good, good, good. And uh, and my friend uh, Gabe and Rebecca, my friends Gabe and Rebecca, Rebecca Lyons. Lyons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Michael, I'm from Floyd, so Ada, Texas. I'm from Floyd, Ada, Texas, and yeah. I don't know any of those people, but I'm going to get to meet Darren tomorrow. Darren's going to be here tomorrow on the show. Oh, great. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. He's a wonderful man. Yes, and he is. Uh, 
we've had we've had many uh, sort of late night conversations all together about Enneagram, and Chris uh, will will. Um, uh, minister to us, us all and and uh, uh, help us figure out things. It, it, he, Chris uh, is just a wonderful, um, uh, uh, wonderfully educated about the Enneagram. And so, so that's how I heard about it. And I am, um, I, I'll admit, like, I, I'm generally skeptical um, uh, of these types of ways of looking at the world. Um, and then layered on top of that, I just don't, like the idea of people being able to read my mail. Uh, that's just the kind of, uh, and, and Chris can read my mail. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. 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 That's and the so, thing. And so, um, but, um, I, I recognize Enneagram as a, as a, um, a, a useful tool, not as a, a primary paradigm for me, but as, as one way to, to look at, uh, and think about myself and what's happening around me, um, and so it's been it's been very helpful. Uh, regarding the second question, th- this may be a, a bit off topic, but we've kind of circled around it. So I'm just going to make the the point the point here, which is that uh, our politics needs and perhaps even sort of metaphysically requires all nine types. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, if, for sure. If you think about um, the, the basic premises of democracy and of representative government, it, it would seem to be uh, logical that um, uh, that all nine types are needed in order for the country to work in the way it needs to work. And so if you don't have the person... Uh, in in the room, in the conversation, at the at the party meetings, who's forcing decisions and trying to make clear what the candidate stands for? If if you just have a whole bunch of nines in the room, uh, then that that's not going to offer a clear uh, uh, choice to voters. But if if you kick the nines out. And you have uh, no one seeking to find out, well, okay, we know where everyone stands, but how are we going to move forward? Um, that's, that's part of our problem. Uh, it's part of our problem today. Um, and, and so that, that's a point. Uh, uh, nothing that we've said on this conversation is caused to be cynical or caused to withdraw. We're just talking about reality. Uh, I'm just talking about the reality of the the, the situation here. Um, uh, we need you, the listener, <laughs> engaged in politics, bringing all that you are uh, uh, in, into the fray. And, um, and I think when we have that, we'll have a much healthier politics. What we have now is only the true believers are in the conversation. And so um, – uh, uh, and that leads to very, like you said, dualistic, conflict-driven um, uh, sort of outcomes. Hmm. It's interesting to me because you uh, have a history with faith and politics that you use the language in that context, true believers. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> well, so right – so my, uh, my belief is that uh, um, uh, uh, when you – when you uh, prioritize uh, a 
it's actually ex- precisely what I was saying uh, before about not looking to politics for your inner needs to be met. Exactly. Which, which is that if you go to politics and you're staking your, and this is actually where we started the conversation, if you go to politics staking your identity in politics, you're going to be led astray. For me, um, your security needs to be placed elsewhere. Uh, for me, the safest place I've found um, is is with Jesus, um, and, uh, uh, and and so you need to have a firmer ground to stand upon when you're engaging in politics than politics itself. Whoa, that is such that's uh, such crazy an good. important crazy such good. an important idea. Uh, can I just ask you uh, the question? When did you know you were a four? When was the when did the penny drop where you went, dang, there it yeah. is? Well, when my wife told me. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you didn't. I hope you didn't shoot the messenger. Yeah, we we were we were with Chris, and uh, you know Chris was running running them down, and you know I'm trying to wiggle, you know, wiggle out of it. And, you know, I'm kind of talking with Chris. Well, I don't, I don't know. I think I may be this. And my wife just said, Michael, you're a four. And that was the end. That oh, was the end. wow. So, I wonder so how I, many people have discovered their Enneagram number right after these words. Honey, that's you. <laughs> yeah. <right>. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, that's, so that I, is true. Yeah. So I try to, you know, there's still a part of me that thinks, I may be a six, um, but but my I, my my wife is is so so confident, and and, and I I see uh, uh, I think I think the four makes sense, and it's just a little little bit of four that's rebelling against mm. it. <laughs> so, Michael, we're uh, what eighty days from election day, something like yeah, that. Yeah, about 70, 78, Yeah, you know exactly. There you go, <laughs> seventy eight days. So um, we've talked. A lot. You've said a lot that is really meaningful. Could you could you give three things to think mm. about? And um, deciding um, how to contribute to an ongoing conversation about what the best thing is for our country. Huh. Well, so I'm um, I actually just finished some content I'm going to be releasing on, on this on this very question, um, and so uh, to, to the listeners out there, just uh, stay tuned for that. It'll be out in, in a week or two, and I'm hoping it'll be helpful uh, at a time when I, I do feel a greater sense of anxiety among the folks I'm talking to about this. This election that than I than I remember. So before um, you answer, tell them where they yeah. can get that information. Well, those who yeah, want it. so so uh, it will be on my website at okay. michaelware.com, dot okay. So michaelware.com, or you could just follow me on Twitter at Michael R. Ware, um, and and I'll be sharing it there as well. Okay. Um. So, so three questions for um for uh, engaging in in this in this election uh, I think that the the first um, uh, the, the first thing I point uh, folks towards is um, really think about how people that are dissimilarly situated than you 
are looking at this election. Um, This election has been more stratified along racial, ideological, class boundaries than um, than uh, any I can remember since since '68. uh, and of course, I don't remember '68 firsthand. Uh, so, um, one of uh, us in the conversation does. <laughs> and so, uh, <laughs> and so, you know, that would be uh, that would be the, the the first thing. And I could I could elaborate on on that more. But uh, I, I just to put a finer point on it. If you don't understand or you can't fathom a reason why someone would vote for the for the uh, for the candidate you're opposing, um, that is a you problem, not a they they problem. Mm. Um, mm. Uh, and so, um, and so, you really need to be thinking about that. Not to change your mind. Not to um, not to um, not to sort of uh, 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 relativize everything. That's not that's not the point. The point is just simply like. Read someone who disagrees with you. <laughs> um, number two, uh, you know, really think about, um, and, and this will be in the content that I'm releasing. Um, think about what you're passionate about. Um, oftentimes, we try and intellectualize. And listen, your vote is your vote. You have experiences that have been given you. You have things that mean more to you than other things. And so, if you uh, if if you lost a cousin uh, to the opioid uh, 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 crisis, if you uh, if you are an adoptive parent and want to make sure the adoption tax credit stays in place, um, I'm not saying to completely internalize your vote, but as a factor, uh, think about what you do with the rest of your life and whether there are political implications to that. Um, and, and sometimes. That's cast aside and been like, oh, you know, uh, l- listen, if you're a, if if you believe in uh, um, uh, teaching music or if you serve overseas, uh, l- let's stick with that example. If you serve overseas, then maybe you don't want a candidate who wants to cut the foreign aid budget. <laughs> and, and it's it's OK to vote on on, on that basis. Um, and, and then just just finally, I'd say um, we need to be thinking about what happens after November 8th. Mm-hmm. Um, it is um, uh, people are going to wake up on November 9th um, uh, feeling like they don't have a place in this country no matter who wins there will be a large section of the population who feels that way and we uh, especially um those of us who are who are a part of this conversation, those of you listening in who are sensitive to these kinds of things, uh, need to think about um, the spiritual harm that a politics of pure power does to people wow. um, and the language of power and who has it and who does not. And those are real things. And we need to be aware of those things. But when we only look 
at our lives through the lens of worldly power and, and powerlessness um, that leads to a spiritual bankruptcy that is that is very serious when you think about how we're going to live together. And so I'm as concerned about November 9th as I am November 8th. Wow. Well, I, I think that's about, uh, about all we can take. I don't think I need to lay down and... I'm voting for Michael Ware for president. I'm writing him in. What do you think? Here's here's my new thing that you're going to hear from me. What is it? Uh, when we're planning shows, I'm just going to keep saying over and over. So how long till we can have Michael on again? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, this Thank is you. this Thank has really much. been a remarkable great. conversation, and and actually. Uh, one that I've I've not heard articulated as as well or as powerfully as as you have, and uh, and that's probably because you're a four. <laughs> that's disgusting. But here's what I would say. Um, I um, have had a lot of anxiety about us having this conversation about the world, about my children and grandchildren, and with. All of the authenticity in me, I feel better because I got to spend this time uh, sitting at your feet and learning from you. It, it really has been an honor to hear you share from your perspective what I believe will be helpful to so many people. Mm. My, Thank you. Uh, just, just for our listeners, again, you have a book coming out. What's your release date? January 17th. It's available for pre-order now. Um, many of the ideas we've discussed on this call are, are talked about in the book. It's called Reclaiming Hope, Lessons Learned in the Obama White House about the future of faith in America. Right. And you're at michaelware.com. Uh, or is it Michael, uh, is it Michael R. Ware or Michael Ware? Michael so I, R. Where is Twitter? So, so oh, it's okay. It, it, both work actually. So, so I actually just got the domain for my for for just MichaelWeir.com, and so so you could do either. <laughs> oh, good. We yeah, like optionality. Yeah, yeah. Good. Oh yeah. <laughs> Listen, my friend, would you would you come on again with us sometime? Maybe on November 9th. To. In fact, after November 9th, we need to have you back on so we can discuss how do we how do we become emissaries of compassion in this new world. I would love to. Oh, fantastic. We would love that, too. Mm. Bless you, you, friend. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. See you later. Yeah, it was great to be with you. Thank uh, you. You, too. Bye. Suze, guess what? What? The Why Christian Conference in Chicago is sold out, but our pre-conference day on September 29th still has tickets available, at which we'll be doing a whole day Enneagram workshop for people. Live. Live and we're better live. Oh, we are so much better live. How do how do people register for it? Uh, they can go to roadbacktoyou.com. Right. And the first event tab mm-hmm. is this event, and you can register right there. And you don't want to miss it because we are we're pretty good live. We have a we have a fun time. And it's a full day. It'll be great. Everybody will leave knowing their number. Knowing their number. And what else is the big news? What else will they be able to get there? The advanced copy of our new book. Ooh, The Road Back to You, an Enneagram Journey to Self-Discovery. Which isn't available until October 4th, so they'll have a jump on that. Man, it's going to be a great time. We sure hope to see all of you there, and we've had a wonderful time today. Suze, love you. You too. Bye. You've been listening to The Road Back to You, looking at life through the lens of the Enneagram. 
Produced by Jim Chapey and engineered by Brad Bass. Our theme music is provided by the band Waterdeep from their album Moment, written by Lori Chaffer. Please visit our website, www.theroadbacktoyou.com, for news, more podcasts, and information on our public appearances around the country. And you can pre-order our book, The Road Back to You, An Enneagram Journey to Self-Discovery, at Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. And join us next time when we'll be with singer-songwriter Don Chapper, an amazing human being. It's going to be a super time, so y'all come back. <laughs>